Now this evening, we are going to be looking at two texts which are combined together to teach us something. And so I invite you to turn with me first to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. We'll be beginning with the New Testament reading, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For our Old Testament reading, I invite you to look with me to the book of Exodus. And this will be our sermon text this evening. We'll be looking at the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. If you're just remembering this portion of Scripture, this is coming at the end of the Exodus narrative. God has delivered His people. He has delivered them from Pharaoh, from the workers of iniquity there. He has delivered them from the fear of Pharaoh forever. He has parted the Red Sea. He has brought them life. And here, after the narrative account of what has happened in Exodus 14, we now have this beautiful story of redemption in poetic form. God gives us this through his servant Moses. So with that in mind, let's give careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This time, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your holy word, all that you have given unto us. And now that we have come, we pray that it might resonate within our hearts. We pray, God, that this would come and transform us. That by the gift of your Holy Spirit, you would take these words and plant them within us so that we might look, act, speak, think, believe, more like Christ. Help us, O Lord, we ask in His name. Amen. Now, there are some sights in our lives that transform us forever. We're celebrating with our brother Trace and the gift of a new child. There's nothing like delivery to transform you forever. There are wonderful, glorious sights that you hold on to and cherish the rest of your days. There are also negative sights, which we can never unsee. They become a part of our heart. They, they char the bits of it in such a way that it appears as if we could never be healed again. But there are also moments, as we've mentioned, of utter and immense beauty. Moments like birth, the appearance of our bride on the day of our wedding, the celebration of some long-hoped-for event, or even staring out over the horizon and seeing the beauty of creation in a new and unexpected way. 
Whether we like it or not, both these positives and these negative events have the ability to transform something about us. Think, for me, think with me for a moment. What are some of the unforgettable moments in your life? Perhaps days, weeks, years, and decades have since elapsed since that very event, but it's still very much freshly imprinted on your mind. You can still remember the sights, the smells, the obscure details of the day. You could perhaps even relive these moments if you tried hard enough. Why? Because these formative events deeply impress themselves on our very souls. But a truly magnificent moment can transcend us. Something monumental can be grafted beyond the heart of an individual and engage and envelop a people. I have never seen the beaches of Normandy, but I do know that June 6, 1944, at the Battle of Normandy, the Allied forces struck a proper death to the Axis forces in World War II. That day is coming up very soon, less than a month away. If you remember your history, this amphibious assault of over 156,000 men transformed the world and history forever. Now, you and I likely did not see it. We did not experience it. And yet the effects of that day perpetuate forever in the heart of the world. It was not merely the victory of the Allies. It was in some sense, for us today, our victory. A unique moment in time and space that shaped us forever. What we can say in short then is that these past sights and realities establish a people. But, but what is going on in our text today? How, how is this supposed to be shaping us? We weren't there. Do we simply have before us in the book of Exodus another amphibious assault recorded in poetic form so that we could not have a blank page in our history books? So that our Bibles would not have a blank page? When we look at this text, we're not watching the outworkings of a skirmish of, of, of some army against another army. We're hearing the very words of God from his holy prophet proclaim in song the unalterable victory of God against his foes. This is different for us today because we presume that good history comes in prose. But in the ancient world, true history came in poetry. We have history. We have more than history. We have the history of salvation unfolding before us in these words. And God is making plain before us His plan. And so this sight, which has come before the Israelites then, has shaped them. And it shapes us. In fact, what we are meant to see is that this story of the Exodus is is about more than one ethnic group of people breaking from the oppression of another ethnic group of people, but a model of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ against Satan and every force of darkness. It, It is the victory we hope for every time we say the Lord's Prayer and ask, let thy kingdom come. Now, this is beneficial for us today, immensely beneficial for us today. Likely not because we're attempting a a pilgrimage in the Middle East, but because the very God who has secured his victory over Israel's slave master has done the very same thing for each one of us in this room if we're believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not reading mere ancient history alone. We're reading family history. We're learning about the redemption and the victory of God which grounds and roots and gives us hope today when we feel as if there's no way God could deliver us 
from whatever dark, horrific situation we find ourselves in. And so my initial challenge to you this evening is very simple. Does your understanding of God line up with what He has revealed about Himself in this song, which He has since inspired and preserved from over 3,000 years ago? We presume that the days of Moses are roughly 1450 B.C. Is this how you view God? Or is your God weaker than this? Is your God far too polite for something like this? Maybe too tame, too timid, too indifferent? Perhaps today have we lost sight, maybe even lost confidence in this faithful, covenant-keeping God and exchanged Him for some cheap substitute whom we think we can control? Is this precisely why we find our own Christianity like drenched logs in a campfire? My prayer for us this evening is simple, that our consideration of God's holy word would rouse our hearts and affections for the God of Scripture, who is infinitely more powerful than we can imagine and think, infinitely more powerful than we give Him credit for on a daily basis. And so Moses has recorded for us what is likely the oldest poetry in all of the Hebrew language. He has recounted the events of all that's just transpired, and he's inviting all of Israel to sing. I always find this interesting. Maybe this is true in your churches. I know this can sometimes be true in churches I've been to. My experience that men don't like to sing. Our society at large is embarrassed about this sometimes. But God calls and commands all of us to sing at what He has done. The most basic application for our text today is to sing at the marvelous works of God. You know, we sing for all sorts of successes in our lives. Even things we haven't accomplished. We have birthdays. You sing on your birthday. People sing to you. Did you do something on your birthday? You didn't do jack squat. Your mom did the work. Or the doctor, if he got paid well. We sing for all sorts of things. We cherish these moments in various ways. But one of the most forgotten points, again, that I want to reiterate and encourage you to do, especially as we have an opportunity to apply it this evening, is that God has called His people to sing. And so this evening, I'm going to break up this song into five parts, five points, if you're a note-taking people. Uh, The first is that God's identity causes exaltation. This is from verse 2. Secondly, that God's victory is proclaimed in history. Verses 4 through 8. Thirdly, that God's enemies make empty promises. Verse 9. Fourthly, God's character is without equal. Verses 11 through 12. And fifthly, God's victory is without limit. Verses 13 through 18. If you're like me and are incredibly slow at taking notes when people speak, I will repeat this later. Be of good cheer. First point, God's identity causes exaltation. Verse 2. Nothing short of the identity of the Lord God Himself leads Moses and all Israel to sing and proclaim the greatness of God. Moses is reflecting on what God has done and publicly declares who this God is in relation to Himself. He says in verse 2, The Lord is my strength. I want to invite you, pay attention to the uses of the word my The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. 
Moses has no ambiguity about this God and his relationship to him. He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. Yahweh is not some generic force or piece of the universe. The Lord God is the true God who has come, who has conquered Egypt. Mosley identifies himself with joy and pride under the name and ownership of the Lord. And this subjective reality and perpetuity of declaration is a necessity for every believer today. Do you just as quickly testify that you belong to the Lord? That He is your Savior, your God, your hope, your strength, your refuge, your rock, your peace, your joy, your friend, your comforter, your ally. Even you today, what is your creed? We had the joy of using the Apostles' Creed. That's a lovely one. He said the Westminster Confession. That's another good one. Those are wonderful creeds. But what is your creed? We can give assent to these creeds, but, but when the rubber meets the road, when, when, when things get hard, when uh, life falls apart, then our creed is really shown for what it is. What is your creed today? Moses testified to the saving reality of God's goodness. He testified of God's power, God's strength. He declared God's saving works as the basis and foundation of his life and hope. He announced that he was not half-heartedly committed to God, mostly committed to God, at least for an hour on Sundays committed to God, or at least then, Friday evening into Saturdays. But he named the Lord his God and his King. Moses named God as his strength and his joy. What is your strength today? What is your joy? But when you feel weak, what do you turn to? What do you think is going to help you? What do you look to to alleviate the pressures and hardships of life? And and all of you in this room have pressures and hardships. Why? Because you're a human living in a fallen world. All of you have different ones as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents, as friends, as wives, as husbands, as brothers, as sisters, as sons and daughters, as individuals, as single people. Every one of us have difficulties. What are you doing with that? Wherever we are today, we stand in need as those of needing help and strength from God. And so I return to the basic question, what is your strength? One of the difficulties about being Americans, and maybe you know this from international relationships or friends or anything, is that we are a people who are proud of what we can do with our own two hands. And there's a good joy in good work. How many of you fathers got to cut your lawn before the, ro- the waters roared and the rains came down and you looked over and you said, those lines, they are good. And then you turned to your children and said, children, they are very good. You have joy when you do hard work. Wives the same, children the same. It is good for us to be delighting in work. But one of our dangers as a people is that sometimes we want to be too self-reliant. We don't need anyone's help. We can do this by ourselves. The danger when we do that is we we build a house on a shoddy foundation. I want you to think about people in general with me for a moment. Think about people in your world who have undergone great transformations. And we've got a lot of little ones in here, and that's lovely. We're very glad that little ones are with us. We're very glad that they come to church and they look at mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, and they learn how to love Jesus. That's our great hope and desire. But we are glad that the little ones don't stay little forever. It is good for infants to grow up. It is good for them to grow tall, to grow wide. It's even good for them to grow slower when they age. Some of our parents say, Amen. I heard that. Our entire existence is a testimony that we are bodies in motion, shifting, changing, moving. We're never the same. 
There's an old quote from Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, who said, No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Now, this is true for the created order, but this is not the case with the Lord. Moses would pen a psalm later, Psalm 90, and he testifies about the unchanging dynamic of the Lord God. He says this in verse 2 of that psalm. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The unchanging nature of God is our hope today. Because the same God who led his people into victory in the past is the same God who is described in Scripture as a man of war. He is our mighty defender and our great God. We are led to sing for joy like Moses because God always fights for His people. And our songs and prayers need to reflect this. We need to secure our hope in this most blessed reality that our God is not a coward. He's not a sheepish gentleman hoping that something happens. He does not abandon us in our great moments of need. I'm not very old, but the older I get, the more beautiful reliability is to me in a friend. Dependability. Being able to rest on someone when they give their word that you know they're going to keep it. Our God is not weak. He's not a liar. He's not petty. He's not forgetful. Our God is a valiant warrior, one who stares in the eyes of his enemies and his very gaze causes them to quake in fear. Does the creed of your heart reflect this God from Exodus 15 this evening? Or have you exchanged him for something else entirely? Which brings us to our second point. God's victory in history. Verses 4 through 8. Moses did not just fall out of youth camp and lave with some emotional high. He is trusting in the unfading unchanging character of God. The victory and hope of the people of God is rooted in time and space and truly historical events. He is looking at what God is doing in the real world. In the real world. I want to keep this section brief for us because we have in this song a form of retelling events of God's victory about the Red Sea. But what is most noteworthy is this imagery that Moses gives to us. In showing the immensity of God's power, notice that Moses speaks of God's nostril and hand. If you had to go into a fight with somebody, you ever get into a fist fight? Don't tell me your story. If you ever get into a fist fight, is your first weapon of choice your nostrils? To blow them on the floor? How ridiculous is that as a concept? What are we learning about God that he conquers the greatest military might of the ancient world with one finger here? What are we learning about his power? It was not by the thousands and legions of angel armies that God sent out to destroy him. We're told very simply, it's by his right hand and the blowing of his nostril. This is how you and I deal with an annoying fly if we're fast enough. And that's the point. In God's eyes, the might of Egypt, the might of all the kingdoms of men, are but a slight annoyance ready to be crushed at any moment. We have so much going on in our world today that should lead us to be concerned. So many devastations. We have the threat of famine, the threat of war, the threat of plague. So many different things that would haunt us if we thought about it truly. Do we believe God is sufficient to deal with those and to walk with us through those seasons? 
Christians, we are called to courage. We're called to humility, but we're also called to courage. Are we courageous because we're blindly optimistic? No. Blind optimism is horrible. Don't do that. We're called to courage because of the character of our God. Because the most effortless action of our God can conquer the very enemies that rob us of health, sleep, and sanity. And so we do well to consider these things today because so often we're more concerned with the enemies and problems which consume our thoughts than we are with God and what he has said. When this happens, we begin to treat our enemies as if they were almighty. We treat them as if they have ultimate sway over our lives, over our joy, over our future, over our families. But only God has this place of power and sovereignty. And so when we commit ourselves as slaves to these false masters, we show in these moments that the God of the Bible is not actually the Lord of our lives, regardless of what we sing or testify, but that our situations are, our fears are, little bits of flesh and blood that can easily be conquered by a single unshoot grape are. And for this we have to repent. We show ourselves faithless. We must acknowledge our weakness before the Lord on our knees in prayer because it's only a man or a woman on their knees that's capable of being transformed. Isn't that fascinating? That humility is the way that we grow. This is an individual who does not pretend to know all things. But as God promises, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. The wicked, the proud, the rebels... They won't abide by God's commands. They write their own creed to suit their passions, and they make idle threats. And this is what we find in our third point, in verse 9. Point number three, God's enemies make empty promises. These promises begin in the heart of Pharaoh and his officers, but they do continue today. They continue the lies that the devil hurls at us. They continue the lies that the unbelieving world hurls at us. And the Apostle Paul warns us then against such things. This is why he gives us our weapon of victory against the tactics of Satan. What does he say? Verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 6. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I want you to think with me here. This is not very complicated. Ready? He doesn't say in most circumstances. In the really, really hard circumstances. On the Tuesday through Thursday circumstances. In all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith. With what? With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That's wonderful language. How do we do this? Faith always requires combating the lies of the devil with truth. Faith must not be some generic thought. Faith is not something you can buy on eBay, put it on a little jar, and then stare at it from time to time. It is a gift of God. It is an activity. It's an action of trust in what God is doing. It's not merely a feeling. We're reminded of the antidote to Satan's venom. And we see this in the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is the grandpa of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It looked on with joy as the Westminster Assembly penned that great confession. But here we look at uh, Heidelberg Catechism 21 and ask the question, what is true faith? Listen carefully with me. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true 
all that God has revealed to us in His Word, it is also a wholehearted trust. My fellow Presbyterians, one of the dangers we have is thinking that Christianity is just about the mind. But we are invited to engage the heart. We are invited to have a religion that's thoroughly rooted in what God has revealed in His Word, but to allow it to drip like sweet honey into our hearts. Christianity void of the mind, this is my background, is empty sensationalism. You'll be picked off by the devil and false prophet alike. Maybe that's not a danger for you today. Maybe it is. But a Christianity void of the heart is empty ritualism that will leave us as loveless hypocrites appearing holy without any substance. We battle against the tools of the enemy by engaging both our hearts and our minds. Are you doing both today? Are you engaging all that God has made you to be in service to this king? Or are you seeking simply to have status quo Christianity, which believes a lie that you can do nothing of what God says and that your life would be fine? The enemy of God will pursue you. He'll hunt you down. He'll separate you. He'll hit your ankle and then begin from there. If you find that you are not waging war regularly on your knees in prayer with Bible in hand against Satan, your sin in the world, it may be uh, likely because you are perfect allies with them. To be a Christian is to be committed to Christ and having yourself daily conform to His image. Because if not, we will fall prey to the lies of our enemies. Because look, you hear two sermons. I presume that your pastor is not preaching for an hour on Sunday. Are you preaching for an hour Sunday mornings? No. I'm not preaching an hour tonight. All God's people said. Um, how, how much TV do you watch this week? Or will you watch this week? How often will you be on your phone? How often will you be reading the paper, the magazine, interacting with other humans who are not believers? You will be assaulted from every angle for the rest of this week with the lies of the devil. How will you com- combat that? No matter how hard I try, your Pastor Zach or Pastor Trace or Pastor Dan or any other pastor, if you're only relying on a sermon, then it's not enough. We need Christ throughout the whole week. We need Him wherever we are. We must be prepared or we will be like Samson in those moments where his perpetual sin found himself against the adversaries, and we read probably one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture in Judges 16.20, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Which brings us to our fourth point, God's character is without equal. Verses 11 and 12. Moses presents the most important rhetorical question for you to consider this evening. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? And when he names the unique attributes of God, what does he say? He says, first, majestic in holiness. He says, awesome and glorious deeds. He says, doing wonders. All of these point in a superlative fashion to the unique identity of God himself. We must always drive this point to our hearts. There is no one, there is nothing else like our God, our God period doesn't matter how wonderful your pastor is or your elders or your deacons. doesn't matter how wonderful this Bible teacher is or that person. No matter how holy they are, they are but a bit of a small, tiny, little misty drop in compared to the infinite ocean of God's greatness and holiness. 
End of discussion. There is no one as holy as our God, or as tender and caring as our God, or as faithful and true as our God, or as dependable, wise, and beyond comprehension as our God. In short, Moses makes plain to Israel and all humanity that this God had come to demonstrate that the Egyptian religious system was rubbish. That the greatest fears that haunted these people since the moment of their birth had easily been conquered by his smallest effort. We were not made to coexist with false idols. We are called to recount that our God conquers every foe. And he does this as the natural outworking of his own character. It is in the character of fire to burn hay and stubble. It is the character of God's holiness to consume the wickedness of our hearts and begin to transform us. Which brings us to our fifth point. God's victory is without limit. Verses 13 through 18. If all that we have said thus far is properly true, then this is the only logical end. God's victory is without limit. God is not limited by your unbelief. God is not limited by your prayerlessness. God is not limited by your sin. God is not limited by anyone or anything. He does not hand over the reins of the universe to the whims of a particular person. The twin arrows that properly segment the fear of the nations in verses 13 through 16 is that distinguished privilege that God has redeemed or purchased a people for, for himself properly. But it was not merely through the blood of the Passover lamb, which you can read about in Exodus 12. It was not through any other sacrifice that would eventually be properly offered according to his word in the wilderness, but it would only be by the shedding of the blood of the Son. We may be tempted to read this glorious song with a telescopic lens, seeing its fulfillment only in the conquest of Canaan, only by Joshua, only by David and the subsequent kingdoms. But as Christians, we are taught to read the Old Testament as coming to a head and centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. These mighty saving acts point forward to his work. But instead of the Philistines or the Edomites or the Moabites, the Canaanites or any other ites that you can remember, we see that this work of Christ is coming to deliver us in a way that we could never deliver ourselves. We find our proper target in the kingdom of God advancing by the Messiah, the long-awaited prophet of whom Moses prophesied. When the Lord Jesus confronted the man filled with thousands of demons named Legion, we have heard this story perhaps a thousand times and think nothing of it. Do you know how terrifying this has to be for an ordinary human to encounter another human filled with thousands of demons? If you and I had to think of some truly great foe in our world, we would think of something of this sort. Here the Lord Jesus is confronted with this man, the demons named Legion. And what happens? This is now Luke 8, 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The kingdom of darkness knows that the very same king 
who crushed the head of Pharaoh is coming for them. And just as God promised to bring the Israelites into a state of peace and shalom with Himself through the waters of the Red Sea, through the horrors and beauty and dread of Mount Sinai, through the mists of the tabernacle, through the glory cloud of the temple, He promises us today through the Lord Jesus Christ that He too will come. And He'll come for you so that we make it all the way home. We are pilgrims on the way to the celestial city. God is not resting in our ability to take the next step the right way. But like a dad, holding his little girl's hand, it's bringing us all the way home. There will be difficulties. And you know it. There will be pitfalls. There will be failures. There will be backslidings. There will be all sorts of terrors meant to consume us. But even as another reformed document called the Canons of Dort remind us in that very last section called the Perseverance of the Saints, we read this from the Synod of Dort. God is faithful, mercifully strengthening the church in the grace once conferred on them, powerfully preserving them in it to the end. You will not make it to those glorious shores by your effort, but by the promise and effort of our God. The promise of God, then, stands above you, stands firm and pressed on your heart. Just as the Lord will reign forever and ever, the Lord will bring all those who cry out to Him in Christ to the spiritual land of Canaan, to the celestial city, to the new Jerusalem. With this in mind, then, How can we be silent? How can we remain unmoved? How can we be indifferent? God is giving us the greatest news we could have ever heard in our entire lives. And every Lord's Day, every Sabbath, we come and pause and tell the world to be quiet. Because our God is speaking. And He calls us to respond to this call to worship in joy. May we learn then to sing well. You may think I sing poorly. It doesn't matter. Sing with your heart. Joyful noise people, you know who you are. We sing with joy. We sing of the faithfulness of our God. We sing of the promises that are extended to us in Jesus Christ. We sing knowing that Christ is not the okay shepherd or the all right shepherd, but the good shepherd who will lead us all, all the way home. With this before us then, Let us take a moment to pray one more time. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the mystery of your plan of redemption. Given in seed form even on the day in which humanity was cursed. You gave Adam and Eve, our first parents, that promise in seed form. But that seed grew. Even though there were weeds, even though there were floods, even though there were horrors, the seed grew. You promised that all the nations of the world would be drawn unto yourself. You promised that the light of the glory of the gospel was coming and that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, the Lion of the tribe of Judah was coming. 
for his bride whom he loves. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have washed us. You have sprinkled us clean with your blood. You have poured your spirit upon us. You have buried us with you in baptism, raised us with you, and seated us in the heavenly places. And so we ask you, most merciful Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that your blessing would be upon us, that we would hope in you in these hopeless times, and that you would use the horrors and atrocities of our world, this darkness, as a backdrop to the glory of the light of Christ. Use us, O God, to share this with others and help us, we ask in your name. Amen.